The Future of Cities is presented by Katerra. Welcome to the Mission Daily. This week, we are previewing our new podcast, The Future of Cities. In season one of The Future of Cities, we do a deep dive into subjects affecting how our cities are growing and changing. Each episode includes commentary from industry-leading experts, including city planners, technology innovators, government officials, architects, builders, and more. This week on The Mission Daily, you'll get to hear the interviews we did for The Future of Cities in their entirety. Today, we are excited to share our interview with Marty Koistra. Marty is the executive director of the Housing Consortium for Seattle and King County. In this interview, Marty shared with us his thoughts on affordable housing and the future of cities. He also explains why we need to build 96,000 more houses per day in order to meet the global demand. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe to The Future of Cities on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Marty, could you share your full name and title, please? Yeah, Marty Koistra. I am the executive director of the Housing Development Consortium in Seattle and King County. Awesome. And today we're going to be talking about affordable housing and the future of cities. Super excited to have you share some insights from your 27-year career. Could you talk through a little bit about your background, your career, and how you got to the place that you are as executive director? Sure. I uh, actually got out of high school uh, early and started my own construction business. I'm a carpenter builder at heart and felt compelled a few years into that to start engaging more from a social perspective. Got a degree in social work and sociology, and that led me directly to the door of Habitat for Humanity, where I spent 24 years working locally, nationally, and globally on the affordable housing crisis. And ultimately uh, left that work in 2013 to head up the Housing Development Consortium here in Seattle and King County. And along that road, you started to work with Habitat for Humanity. Explain what your role was with Habitat for Humanity and some of the things that you learned. Yeah, well, there's a lot there. I mean, many years spent in the region of the Midwest helping start Habitat affiliates and provide consultation and support to them. And that's where the first real learning began is that, you know, trying to scale that particular model to move beyond just a few homes. I mean, we had 256 affiliates in a seven-state area you know, working really hard at building roughly 700 houses a year. But how do you take and move past that? And we saw for a decade while I was working at Habitat International that we sort of flatlined at about 6,000 homes a year in the U.S. Compared to many of the developing markets we were working in internationally where you saw some real scale taking place. I think there's a number of reasons why, right? You're dealing with the difference in land cost, land availability, but also that sense of urgency. When you're in a market that is like a Cambodia, for example, folks are really willing to collaborate. They're willing to build networks. They're willing to innovate beyond just traditional thinking. And so that's some of the core learning. And, and really the, the theme in all of that is how do you take a brand that at the time I was working for the organization exceeded that of Starbucks and Nike when you did brand analyses and leverage that brand to really get the kind of scale that's necessary. 
maybe another way to put it, it was fun to travel around speaking to audiences and say, isn't it great that somewhere around the world, Habitat for Humanity is starting a new home every six minutes? And you get all the cheers and the enthusiasm and the surprised looks on people's faces. And then you say, oh, by the way, we're only about 96,000 houses a day short. And, you know, a sort of a deflating way of approaching the issue, but really to drive home the, the reality of, of how significant the need is. So you're talking about a house being built. Was that worldwide? That is correct. Yes. So worldwide, every single day. Habitat was building a house every six or starting a house every six minutes, but we were still falling short 96,000 houses a day. Yes. So, and urban migration, natural disasters, man made disasters, you know, and, and just the vulnerabilities of, of failure of livelihood in, in many places, just driving people to that kind of a need. Actually, last year, UN Habitat 3 came out with their report, and I believe the number is $987 billion estimated to address the needs of those that lack affordable housing just today. That would be if we were just trying to solve housing right now, today, it would be a $987 billion problem. So clearly, this needs an exponential solution. There's no doubt. I mean, I can correlate that if you'd like locally. I mean, we're doing a countywide strategy plan in King County now that's going to end up being an 18-month process. But the analysis there, if you look at the number of individuals who are homeless, the households who are cost burdened or extremely cost burdened, you know, paying more than 30% and paying more than 50% of their housing, their income for housing costs, we would need 156,000 houses today. And if we plug in growth expected by 2040, that number jumps to 244,000 units of affordable housing that need to be created just to address the issues here in King County. And you're talking about in, in King County in Seattle, you're talking about average house price being roughly $500,000 to somewhere in that range at 150,000 units, it gets pretty expensive pretty quick. There's no doubt. And and that would be uh, on the higher end of what it's costing to produce now. We're seeing some units we're still able to get in at 310, 325,000. But a lot of that's the variability of land issues. I mean, construction costs are at a premium. The construction industry was decimated during the recession and there's a labor shortage. All of those things continue to increase costs all up and down the West Coast. And at that price point, you know, when you think about the scale of what we're trying to accomplish, it does get a little daunting. So what are people doing now to fix these problems that historically or historically have done to fix these problems that are not working, in your opinion? Well, I think the hardest part in all of this is that there's there's good intent all the way around. And in many respects, we spend our policy energy at, at HDC trying to enact policies that we think will give us some kind of yield. When you cumulatively add up the yield, though, of many of those what I call more tweaks or technical fixes to policies, you're still not getting to a place where you can have significant impact. I mean, in 2015 in Seattle, we completed the housing affordability and livability agenda. 
and it came up with 65 recommendations of things we needed to work on all the way from doubling our housing levy, which we did um, a couple years ago to raise $290 million from property taxes to be used for income and rent restricted housing to tenant protection laws, to helping change regulation within the operations of city hall, permitting and design review and all those questions. But even at that, our projection was out of those recommendations, we'd get 20,000 units of income and rent restricted housing in 10 years. That's nothing to sneeze at. It's a tripling of what we were doing at the time. And, and that what we're doing at the time was already double of San Francisco. So nothing to sneeze at in terms of really pushing the envelope, but even still, that number pales against the need. And so somehow or another, we've got to draw people to a different space across sectors that looks at this as, as more of an adaptive challenge to use Heifetz and Lindsay speak rather than just technical fixes. So do you think that increases in transportation can be something that alleviates some of the stress of this or like what are other other things that like tangential industries that need to be kind of solved as well well there's no doubt and and you know seattle king county is a classic example of a location where transit is roughly 50 years behind where it should be and so in using a correlating way of thinking we did get the ability to create a regional transit body called Sound Transit here, and recently got state legislative authority to garner, you know, and put together $53 billion worth of investment to move the next wave of light rail through the area. So uh, two things come out of that. One is, if we can do that for transportation, is there a way to do that on housing, right? And then secondly, to your question, transportation is going to play a key role only if there is significant station area planning that is done to make sure that we look at how we leverage each of those high capacity transit station areas as a way to create density and to ensure affordability. And we're doing our best to try to do that proactively because we know what happens if you don't do acquisition proactively in those station areas land values increase significantly and you're usually running behind the eight ball. So do you think that like on a, on a general basis here, you have development of transit and you've said in the past that, you know, some areas transit is 50 years behind some cities, but do you think that if we are able to, you know, move faster in like kind of the sprawling cities, do you think that that can be something where, those cities can increase in size and and just cost of living can can start to actually go down. And I guess like what would it take for cost of living to actually start decreasing in some of these cities? Because like we're not really getting there very quick. No, you're absolutely right. And and there's a countervailing force, right, which is this desire on the part of the current economic engines, which, you know, in, in many cases we see uh, as tech sector jobs, is there's this desire to create centralized headquarters operations. And so when you do that and you further exacerbate the urbanization issues that we're facing, urban migration issues, then you make it that much more complicated to 
figuring out how you house everyone. And and usually what happens, as you well know, is we bifurcate who gets to live where based on their income capacity or otherwise known as drive till you qualify. And I think that with the Puget Sound Regional Council here, which allocates our federal transportation dollars and does our regional planning, we're starting to have a lot of conversations about what is the parallel activity to ensure that as we place jobs, how are we placing those and enticing companies to place those in more geographic dispersion rather than just centralizing them all in urban cores? You had talked about, you have talked about the idea of like unskilled labor and how it's not necessarily a something that is a scalable solution. Could you just talk about like like the idea of unskilled laborers and like maybe some of the shortcomings of that? The other dimension to all of this is what is happening with an existing workforce. If an existing workforce is not evolving to meet the demands of the current economic engines, and the tech sector is a good example of this, you end up in migrating uh, the kind of workforce that you need rather than investing in in helping the existing workforce that lacks the skills that are now required to be able to, you know, advance into those positions. So in other words, you're changing the dimension of the number of people who need to live in a space simply because you're bringing in an entirely new workforce. That doesn't mean that there still aren't jobs that relate to supporting those industries and those sectors, but if those incomes don't rise at the same level, uh, then you're creating this huge gap, you know, and the, and the mismatch between income and the, and housing costs is exacerbated, and we're seeing that as a dilemma all over the country. Well, and and I think the other piece of that too is that you know the construction worker that's working on a project in downtown wherever san francisco or atlanta or seattle or wherever is going to have a difficulty finding a place to live based off of their salary but i I think the the other side of that which is kind of a different situation altogether is having unskilled labor or unskilled people like you know the ians of the world helping out to build a habitat for a humanity home or something like that where it seems like it's a fix to be having, you know, dispersed networks of people build houses. But in reality, is that sustainable over the long haul to rely on unsophisticated talent, you know, and volunteers? Yeah. I mean, if you want to, let's pick that up specifically at the Habitat for Humanity level with a community engagement model. I mean, there's a couple of, of key things to note there. One is when you start talking about even more and more technical kinds of construction that are required in, in urban environments today, it's, it's different than building a single family detached one story ranch home, you know, in a suburban area. And so scaling that kind of development when you're talking about multi-level townhomes and and other complicated structures unskilled labor is valuable but it doesn't necessarily help you cross the line i mean i just to be honest with you when i look at the habitat for humanity model in the u.s 
I always believe that the volunteer component, the community engagement component, which is the magnetism of the brand, is really good at helping take a curious bystander, encourage them and inspire them to become a casual volunteer. But then the real opportunity lies in how do you take those people then and have them become committed advocates using their voice for real systems change. In other words, a community probably should be embarrassed that it has a Habitat for Humanity affiliate because that says that the market and other forces aren't working and you have to rely on volunteers to build affordable housing. That says a lot about a community. And yet, if we can use that platform, that sort of marketplace, so to speak, which is very non-threatening. It's a non-threatening port of entry to help people come to that space. How do I convert them then to go out and say, hey, you know, something's really wrong here. We need wholesale systems change. We've got to do something much bigger. How can I advocate for more resources, changes in policies and those sorts of things? I love that idea. And I've always thought that that is the allure of, you know, you get to send a person to another country or somewhere in the U.S. and they get to feel good about contributing. But that's the start of the journey for that person. Like that's the start of the engagement where we don't need you to be doing labor. We need you to be involved in the community. We need you to be involved in looking at affordable housing holistically. And ultimately, like we need to have a place where unskilled laborers are not building homes. They need to engage far beyond that. And professionals can do the ones who can build these, build multifamily structures and, you know, and all of that. Absolutely. And it's, it's really a question of, you know, how do you leverage that opportunity? And we're seeing more of that even here now in Seattle, where one of our members, the Low Income Housing Institute, is driving a tiny house initiative, and they're using the same kind of model as Habitat for Humanity, where you get volunteers to show up on a Saturday and build these very small shed-like structures, which are much better than having people living in tents and tarps. But it's another way, again, to take that empathy that people have, right, about we have to do something and mobilize it. And and for me, the real question is, what are we doing when we're mobilizing people to make sure they're educated, right? Because we're all either authentically or conveniently ignorant. You know, the hard yeah. part is moving past that then to action. Yeah. So give me an example of how like if you had a magic wand and you could start solving some of the problems for affordable housing in America what would be kind of like your your first few like wand strokes that would start to to engage different whether it's organizations or different things or getting different factions together like what what is kind of the starting points of your solution for affordable housing yeah well i think that you know, one of the problems that we face, the challenges we face, and we've seen this politically even at the federal level over the last few decades, is the intervention, if you call it from a social services perspective, the intervention of housing is far more expensive than some of the other interventions that are available to us. And so because of the complexity and the cost of housing, we tend to shy away from trying to really invest in solving it. And that's where we're missing the boat because if you look at it from 
a pragmatic standpoint, even if I don't come at this from a humanitarian perspective or a perspective where I think it's a moral issue, I can embrace the economics of it. And so here in Seattle, we have clearer understanding that if we spend $16,000 a year to house someone in permanent supportive housing, that's a whole lot cheaper than the 100000 we might spend in the emergency room at Harborview or in the jail system. And so economically, what we need to do is figure out how do we cross sectors? And others have written about this over the years, but thinking about housing as a verb rather than just a noun, right? And how do we really understand housing and health, housing and education, housing and transit, housing and aging, all of those dimensions, housing and mental health. And so from that perspective, what we believe we need to do and we're trying to do here is draw all those sectors together into a complete understanding about how at the core of almost every successful intervention, you have to start off with, or at least at some point, ensure that there's stable housing in that household. And I think when we get universal understanding of that, we start to get a universal voice, we get a little bit of synergy and we get some energy and maybe we can renew a deeper understanding of how federal investment in this makes sense, how increasing state investment, and certainly how we leverage local policymaking all to fit together really helps. I love that idea. And it gave me another idea, which is the intervention that needs to happen is is us with, and maybe, maybe it's the Future Cities podcast that'll help do that, but is with us with America and saying, when you have deltas that are 155,000 units, we need an intervention to look at. We need a new way of looking at this stuff because what we have been doing is not working. And and I think that you're exactly right that if you look at housing as an isolated problem, it seems really difficult to tackle. And then when you start to add elements to that, it seems more difficult. But ultimately, you're exactly right that this goes far beyond just the housing for that individual person. There's many different things that are going into that. And it seems too hard, but we have to do something radically different if we're going to change a problem that's extremely widespread. There's no doubt. And that means we got to go upstream. I mean, if you look, and I don't have the ability to give you a number on this, but in this state, we have so many homeless children. I think it's close to 40,000 children, school-age children who are homeless in the state of Washington. A number of them end up living temporarily in hotels, motels, and places like that as their shelter solution. And how we get them to and from school is we pay taxi rides for them. And so if you look at the amount of money just in that example of uh, that's spent on that sort of transportation, the only thing you can come out of that with is, I hope there's some taxi drivers that are making a living wage out of the deal. Otherwise, you're asking yourself, why are you subsidizing that versus investing it in housing? That is wild. That is absolutely wild. I heard a story of a city planner that had something very similar to that, where they put up a large group of people and the hundreds of people in hotel rooms for two months, and then eventually ran out of money for the project and had to move everyone out of hotels. And it cost a huge tax dollar or a tax amount, which ultimately did absolutely nothing but short-term thinking and did not solve the problem. Yeah, we knew years ago because of the, the nature of how the needs of people who are homeless and lacking shelter 
was growing that we had to provide relief to that. And we ended up subsidizing for many years uh, shelters. And no one ever believed that they should and would become part of the institutional landscape. But because of our persistent lack of investment in truly affordable housing, we end up with a place where we're constantly coming back to that relief mode. And it's exacerbated by a number of factors of the changing in the nature of the economic engines in the country, the growing issues with the opiate crisis and other addiction problems and mental health and mental illness, which in the state of Washington is probably funded at the lowest. Uh, we are the worst, I believe, or right near the worst in the country for providing mental health services in Washington state. It's, it's unbelievable. And the thing that I think people don't necessarily understand is that we're paying for it anyways. So why don't we just create something that's a solution that's going to last for 50 years? Like create something, stop solving this with band-aids, right? Like the incremental steps are not the way. It needs to be exponential thinking and exponential thought that solves the problem. Yes. And, you know, you would think that if we embraced it from that perspective, even if you had problems with means testing, in other words, are people worthy of getting help and support? You could come at it from the, the perspective of what could it do to the economy if we boosted the engine of, of those who are engaged in producing and preserving affordable housing. So we have elected, quote unquote, the developer in chief to our highest office in the country. You know, is there a way for somebody to somehow embrace this opportunity as a way to really boost our economic engine and see it for what it could be? And for those of us who care about it from a social justice perspective, equate all of that together into some holistic new really scalable model that's proportional to the need. And I love I love your quote about that if we believe in liberating everyone is valuable for society, we can't have 60% of people living like this. Could you like kind of expand on that a little bit? Essentially, it is known and, and Dr. Manuel Pastor and others have written about this when you understand that you have a segment of the population which is encumbered or in in chains basically because of their lack of economic capacity, you're losing the benefit of having those individuals be part of a vibrant community. Um, and some people might look at it from a consumerism perspective. You know, those are the people who could be buying garden hoses, lawnmowers, and gas, and all of those things. But it's also the lack of our ability to tap into the assets and the strengths that people have because they are so overwhelmed day to day with survival. We as a community are not benefiting from the gifts and the talents and what they can bring to the table. And all of that together says that, you know, we're sort of segmenting our society and we're not leveraging who and what we can be based on an asset-based approach for how vibrancy and community happens. That's great. I love that. And I couldn't agree more. And part of the driving force for the future of cities is how do we facilitate the dialogue that we can get those 60% of people out of horrible situations and live in places that are beautiful and amazing and close to where they work or in a, and allow them to be free to do the things that they want to do and contribute to society in the ways that they want to, rather than fear of the alternative. So one of the one of the kind of final things that we'd like to do is just go through a little lightning round question and ask ask a few things just kind of like one 
one minute answers or less or things like that of fun, different kind of things that we're looking on, we're talking about at the mission and just kind of provide a little extra for our listeners. So uh, if you're up for it, are you ready for the lightning round? I'll try to rise to the occasion. Okay. What app on your phone are you using that is the most fun? I would say it's probably LinkedIn. Oh, interesting. I'll have to check out your LinkedIn. I don't know if we're connected. I'll have to to give you some love on the old LinkedIn. What do you like about LinkedIn? It's a great way to stay connected to all the people that I've worked with over the years. I mean, I believe in, in the power of networks. It's really others that get things done. And it's how well you can weave your network together that I think accomplishes the, the greatest opportunities for us. Okay. What show or you know podcast or thing like that is your favorite right now? I love Forged in Fire on the History Channel. That's probably the oh, one. Yeah. Uh, probably the one I'll state. I, I also like to watch The Voice, although I'm, I'm frustrated with it at times. Forged in Fire. We had that on it. I think it was like Thanksgiving. My brother loves knives and all things like that. What do you think makes a great city? I've talked to a lot of people who walk around Seattle and they feel they feel that vibrancy of being in the energy of a city. Uh, there is energy there. I, to me, it's it's this question, and, and I'm involved with another group called Seattle for Everyone, but it's it's really whether or not you're welcoming and inviting for all people, and you have that diversity. What is, and I know you might be a little biased here, so you can give two if you want, but what is your favorite city? Oh, boy, that's tough. I mean, I love Minneapolis, and I better say I like Seattle, or people are going to be upset with me, but I do like it here in Seattle. Final lightning round question, and then you're off the proverbial hot seat. What's your favorite one-day getaway in the Seattle area? Oh, that would have to be going up to the Olympic Peninsula. I was just out kayaking and canoeing on Lake Quinault in the Olympic Peninsula, and it's pretty hard to beat. That's awesome. I was kayaking last weekend in San Pablo Reservoir here in the Bay Area. Not quite, not quite the Olympic Peninsula, but still fun. All right. That's it. That's all we got for the, uh, any, well, any, any other kind of things that you'd like to share or other kind of like parting thoughts that you'd like to get to our listeners about whether it's affordable housing, building, transportation, future cities, um, anything like that? I'd just say that I think that it's a lot easier in today's society and, and in the way we communicate and learn with each other to come up with the 30 second sound bites about what's wrong and what's negative and who doesn't deserve to get help, all of those things. And it takes at least 30 minutes to educate uh, somebody like a Marty to really understand the depth and the magnitude and complexity of these issues. I'd just like to encourage everybody to invest those 30 minutes wisely and not necessarily let the 30 seconds overwhelm their understanding. I couldn't agree more. And, you know, here at the mission, we believe that the human species is amazing, that we, you know, humans are unique and different and, and fantastic. And we're definitely worth growing every day and improving. And there's always things to improve. And Things can be undone that have been done. There are things that we can do as a society that continue to improve upon our legacy as a species. And that's, that's what we're all about. So I'm just so glad you could take some time out of your day and talk to us. Yeah, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Take care now. Thank you to our friends at Katera. 
The multi-trillion dollar global construction industry is ready for change. Katera's end-to-end team is joining together from different industries to innovate the future of building. Learn how you can join their growing team at katera.com or click the link in our show notes. Hey listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.